0: century Polish composers. Many would say the two greatest Polish composers of all, apart of course from a certain Frederick Chopin. They are Karol Szymanowski, who lived from 1882 to 1937, and Witold Lutosławski, who lived from 1913 to 1994. Between them, they cover almost the whole of the 20th century. There's not a lot of overlap chronologically between them, unfortunately, but creatively, There is. There are all sorts of interesting points of contact, other than nationality, between these two great Polish composers. And we'll be hearing two of their finest works, Szymonowski's First Violin Concerto and Lutosławski's Fourth Symphony. Now, they're separated by nearly 80 years, yet it's possible to hear echoes of the Szymonowski in the Lutosławski, not just superficial resemblances, but a deep spiritual kinship between these two composers much more, in a way, than nationality, than with the question of how a sensitive artist comes to terms with living in that hugely eventful and devastatingly violent century. Lewy was only three when Szymanowski wrote his first violin concerto, that's 1916. This was, I've put in my notes, that it's a tough time for Poland, but when isn't it? Um, as so often Poland found itself caught between great powers who were intent on cudgelling the brains out of each other. And whenever Germany or Russia start waving swords at each other, the Poles always seem to get caught in the middle. Poland wasn't even a country in 1916. It wasn't even an autonomous grand duchy like Finland. There was a big national push underway at the time, and Poland finally achieved the breakthrough to independence in 1918, at the end of World War I exactly like Finland. Well, there's a reason, I think, for extending this comparison a bit, because it's rather fascinating to compare a Polish national figure like Szymonowski with the Finn Sibelius. Sibelius was strongly identified with his own country's national struggle. In fact, he was seen in his youth as something close to a kind of musical freedom fighter, taking part in semi-illegal musical demonstrations. And if you know his great heroic nationalist piece, Finlandia, you can sense that truly epic sense of struggle, something gritty and ardent and bursting with ethnic pride. But that whole world is, well, worlds away from the sound world of Szymanowski's Violin Concerto. Something very different is opened out here. How will you describe music like that? Words perhaps like lush, fragile, sensual, full of nervous intensity. A kind of almost hallucinatory vividness about this music at times. And there's a delicious little touches of colour, like the two solo violins at the end with the Celeste. That's very, very typical of and It reminds me of a description of Debussy's music by César Franck, music composed on the points of tiny needles. You get that sense about it. The nerves are incredibly stimulated in this music. And there's a sense of something dreamlike about Szymonoski's first violin concerto right from the very start. In fact, I think this is one of the most strikingly original openings in the concerto repertory. And in fact, I was feeling rather nostalgic listening to it here today because I can remember discovering this piece at the age of 13 when I was a student at what was then the Northern School of Music, about two blocks away from here. And a friend of mine who was a violin fanatic at the school lent me an LP, which had the Shimonovsky on the B-side. I remember putting it on first by mistake, and it made an incredible impression on me. I just felt I'd never heard sounds like this before. Absolutely immediately from the start, the sense of being riveted to your seat by, well, somebody conjuring up an incredible new imaginative world in orchestral sound. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I think that's 1916. All those glittering, shimmering sounds, those tiny pulsating points of light, voluptuous shadows, hints of weird birdsong on the woodwind, and then those swooning violin glissandos at the end. An extraordinary sound, aren't they? Shimonovsky seems to take delight in creating just pure sound for its own sake, the magic of sonority, one kind of sound image floating into the next, almost like the logic of dreams. I can understand why some people listening to this concerto, even at its first performance, wondered if Shimonowski had resorted to a little of what the late Frank Zappa used to call trendy chemical amusement aids. Um, Certainly, you can imagine, the more you know about this piece, it being very much embodied in that kind of romantic opium dream tradition that goes right back to Thomas de Quincy, another Mancunian, who, indeed, brought up just down the road from here. And that high solo violin soaring above, that was one of the things that Szymonoski was most pleased about when he heard the concerto for the first time. Partly he was inspired by the violinist he wrote the concerto for, Pavel Kochansky. but at the same time, I think he felt that he'd touched on something particularly personal here. The sound is so magical, he wrote, that people here were completely transfixed. And just imagine the violin is continually on the top. But it is very striking, actually, listening to this concerto, how much of it is written high up. And I can remember one violinist I knew who was trying to learn it, saying that it hurt his fingers more than anything he'd ever had to learn before. Although, talking to Alina earlier, just a little before the programme, she said it wasn't a problem for her, which I can quite believe. But there's a very sound, practical reason for having the violin so high up, because, as you've probably noticed looking at the BBC Philharmonic today, the orchestra, by concerto standards, is absolutely huge. Now when 20th century composers for violin concertos like Prokofiev and Shostakovich wrote for the violin, they very deliberately scaled the orchestra down, much smaller than the conventional symphony orchestra. But this is a vast symphony orchestra with 13 woodwind, full brass, piano, two harps, celeste, big percussion, full strings. And the violin somehow or other has to make itself heard above all these incredible lush textures to carry above all this sea of sound. I'm sitting here thinking, well, I'm talking so much about all the incredible sound colours that Szymanowski creates, but what about those gorgeous harmonies as well? Isn't that extraordinary? I've known this concerto, I realise now, for something like 40 years, and still I'm sitting here listening with shivers going up and down my spine as when I heard it for the first time. That's music that really endures. But don't go away with the idea that the logic of dreams, free association, means that the concerto is loose in construction. I remember one early commentator writing about the concerto said that at the same time it is held up by a framework of gladiatorial strength. Well, Szymanowski would have loved a word like gladiatorial. He loved the Mediterranean. He loved imagining the Mediterranean of pre-Christian days with that savage and tender eroticism and also something that would strike a chord with him with its rather more tolerant attitudes towards homosexuality. I won't dissect the form of the concerto, because in some ways, if you're coming into it for the first time, the best way to appreciate this extraordinary one-movement structure is just to go along with the flow of ideas. You can analyse it later, but if you are interested in seeing how intricately it's constructed, I recommend you to the writings of Professor Jim Sampson, who's done a very nice job of breaking it down into its constituent elements. But that really isn't how most of us experience it. It's much more like a state of continual flux, something like Debussy's La Prémedie Fun which, when you analyse it, you realise is very tautly constructed indeed, but which does seem to grow in a kind of flow of images, one into the next. And as with Debussy's La d'un Fun, the Szymonowski first violin concerto was inspired directly by a poem, by a Polish symbolist writer called Tadeusz Michinski, It's a poem called May Night, and the dream element, the associative emotional logic, is very clear at the start. Um, Apologies if there are any Poles here for this translation of Polish, which loses, I'm sure, a lot of the magic of the original, but it's the best I could find asses in crowns settle majestically on the grass fireflies are kissing the wild rose and death shimmers on the pond and plays a frivolous song ephemerids fly into dance oh flowers of the lakes nereids very ripe imagery here but you can hear so much of that already in the very beginning of the concerto tiny points of light bird song for instance on the woodwind or they could they be glimmering fireflies it's very much in keeping with Machinsky's may night nocturnal imagery And there's that line just a little later on the couplet in the poem. Death shimmers on the pond and plays a frivolous song. Well, we get the shimmering all right. And there's a very clear indication of that frivolous song in what the oboe plays on top of the shimmering in the background. And then the violin glissandos later. Could they be the ghostly braying sound of those strange asses in crowns that Michinsky mentions at the very beginning? ghostly hee-haw at the end on the violins. I wonder if that makes sense. Another commentator I remember reading about this concerto just talked about its perfumed orchestration, and that struck another chord with me a few years later when I met an old man who'd worked in the offices of, of um, Szymanowski's publisher, Universal Edition, in Vienna. And he remembered, as when he was very young and an apprentice in the office, that the office would empty whenever Shimonovsky came in because he was so addicted to putting perfumes and colognes on himself that very frequently you'd either have to open a window or leave the room. <laughs> Extraordinary. But quite a connoisseur of sense, like Wagner, loved the idea of having sensual beauty around him when he composed, found it very stimulating to his imagination. When you listen to the concerto for the first time, you can get the impression that there's a profusion of motives and themes emerging here. But actually, when you get to know it, there are fewer than there first appear. It's the transformation of these basic ideas that gives the impression of thematic richness. But one theme stands out above all. In fact, just as I came into the building today, I heard one of the members of the orchestra whistling it as he walked down the corridor. So I thought, it's doing its old magic again. Rather typically, Szymonoski doesn't sort of present us with a theme on its own. He has it emerge from the soaring violin, but it's very clear on its entry from right from the start that this is central, that in some mysterious way, this theme is a key to what the concerto is about. So, again, does the poem provide any help as to what the significance of music like this might be? Well, I do think so, then we come to the central part of Michinsky's poem. I fly here over water, there under trees, in the wood are glades as if appointed for these nocturnal revels, and all the birds pay tribute to me, for today I wed a goddess. There's a definite hint in the tone of that music there, I think, of Wagner's erotic mystical masterpiece, Tristan and Isolde. Especially so when we get to the final climax of the concerto, which has definite overtones of Wagner's famous Liebes tour to the love death. It's that overwhelming sense of erotic consummation that's desired for so long. And yet, as in Tristan, there's a very really real question as to whether this consummation is absolutely joyous fulfillment, or whether there's something tragic. Is it actually love or death that prevails in the end? A very strong sense of that question, I think, emerging as we approach the climax of Shimonovsky's concerto. We'll take it from the end of the solo cadenza. This is the soloist's big moment, maybe approaching the moment where he prepares himself or she prepares herself for the wedding to the goddess. Very generously, Shimonovsky left the composition of the cadenza to his soloist, Pavel Kochanski, though I doubt if you guess, listening to it, that it was actually written by another hand. The cadenza builds excitedly and then in comes the orchestra with what, to my ears, does sound like it could be a violent tragedy tragic reversal. Yes, that music does seem very close in spirit to the climax of Michinsky's poem, another one of those, as it were, amorous conflagrations, to use his own expressions. It's very difficult to detach joy from terror and luscious sensual delight from pain. As Mashinsky writes, And now we stand by the lake in crimson blossoms, in flowing tears of joy with rapture and terror, burning in amorous conflagrations. The fire seizes the aged trees and they shed tears of pitch. It's ecstatic but incredibly violent imagery too. I wonder if we can sense something of Shimonovsky's own predicament, maybe, in this music, his own longing for something, as a homosexual who saw erotic mysticism as perhaps the only real possibility of fulfilment, as a sensitive, aristocratic child brought up in gilded isolation, and a leg injury as a very young child, indeed, restricted him still further, even as an older man, Szymonovsky could be awe-inspiringly otherworldly. I got to know that wonderful old critic Felix Abrahamian not long before he died. And as a teenager, he turned pages for Szymonovsky when Szymonovsky came to London and played his own Sinfonia Concertante. And Felix remembers that Szymonovsky was in a strange state with his hands shaking at the beginning of the rehearsal. This was apparently because he hadn't eaten, because he hadn't got any money. At the end of it, however, as soon as Szymonoski had got his fee for the concert in cash, he insisted on taking everybody, including Felix, the teenage piano page-turner, out to the Savoy for a ludicrously extravagant meal, and then couldn't work out why he hadn't got any money for the train. It just seems so typical of the way that he organised or didn't organise his life. But there is also maybe a sense of something that the kind of sensitive, more introverted kind of mind does in times of crisis. Because, as I said, this concerto was written in 1916, right in the middle of the First World War. Because this is a time when other composers were retreating into mysticism. You can sense something of the sensitive kind of creative artist who, in the midst of this time of tremendous upheaval, is looking for consolation somewhere else in a world of dreams. I suppose you could say that the violin concerto reflects that, but as so often in great art, it can't simply be escapist. The poignancy, I think, is that Szymonovsky also shows us the other side. That loss of self in ecstasy is only passing, that it turns into its opposite at its height, that it dissolves and leaves us in the real world. Well, you can judge for yourselves now as we hear Shimonovsky's first violin concerto. It's played for us by the violinist Alina Ibrahimova with the BBC Philharmonic, guest leader Ben Holland, conducted by Leo Hussain. The Dream Snuffed Out Like a Candle, Szymonowski's first violin concerto. BBC Philharmonic, guest leader Ben Holland, conducted by Leo Hussein and our soloist Alina Ibrahimova. Witold Lutosławski seems in some way a rather more worldly man than his great Polish predecessor, Karol Szymonowski. I interviewed him once, just before the end of his life, and he was lovely, he was urbane, charming with those exquisite manners that an awful lot of older Polish gentlemen have. And he was very clearly focused on the task, very courteous, and there were definitely no clouds of perfume to contend with either. But it was fascinating Though I mentioned Szymonovsky's name, and of course his eyes lit up, and he told me that hearing the First Violin Concerto of Shimonovsky and the Third Symphony were two of the most formative experiences of his life. You can certainly hear absolutely direct echoes of Shimonowski, in some of Lutoslawski's earlier works. They're not so obvious on the surface when we come to the Fourth Symphony, which he composed in 1993. That's just before his 80th birthday. It is, however, one of his most focused and powerfully expressive works. It's an extraordinarily vibrant and vital work for a man approaching 80. The beginning of the Fourth Symphony is hushed, but it also has something of that high expressive charge and directness of Mahler. Very strong sense of momentum there, very slow flow, but nevertheless powerful. You can feel this music is moving somewhere, but then almost immediately comes something completely different. A kind of shimmering, fabulous texture, much more close in spirit, and in some of its sounds, to Shimonovsky's First Violin Concerto. Those of you who are listening on the radio won't have noticed something that those of us here in the studio will. And that's that our conductor, Leo Hussain, isn't actually beating time during that music. That's actually because in these passages, the Tyswawski doesn't actually have a clearly marked beat. The tempo is now free-floating. The way it's written on the page is quite different. There are little scraps of ideas, sometimes with wiggly lines, indicating that the players should repeat them as much as they can up to a certain point. Now, if you look at dictionary entries on Lutoswalski, there's a word that often turns up in connection with some of his most radical creations of the 1960s, and that's aleatoric. Musicologists love words like that. What it means is music that's left to chance. The word alea in Latin means a dice, so it's an element of throwing a cast of the dice to decide something at this point. Lutoswalski wanted to bring in an element of something that destabilize the traditional beat, the regularity of the conductor. Imagine the way that, for instance, a jazz soloist will play against the beat. The jazz soloist will play quite freely in relation to the regular beat established by the percussionist. Or think also of old descriptions of Chopin's rubato. It used to be said that he played the piano right hand much more freely than the left hand, so that the two would kind of move at different speeds together. Ludislawski in fact said in an interview that what he wanted was to bring the capricious element back into music, the element of play. But what we have here is so much more than an effect. Basically, Lew is trying to keep not just two different kinds of sound, that very lyrical sound of strings and clarinet at the beginning and then these freer, shimmering sounds, but also two different attitudes to time. The first piece of music that we heard was very, very measured and deliberate and regular with that slow, pounding bass from the cello and the basses. The other kind of music is rhythmically free, and you can't follow a beat at all. So we've got a tension between two different kinds of music, one of which is moving forward, the other seems to be static. It's like that old idea of irresistible force meets immovable object. They create a kind of psychological friction between the two of them. Pattern is basic to the whole symphony, this recurring pattern between music that moves and music that's static, music that's got dynamic momentum carrying it forward, and music in which that capricious, time-defying element holds sway. The alternation of these types of music goes on throughout the symphony in changing ways. Indeed, actually, you could say that it happens on a larger scale, too, because although the symphony is only in one movement, it's really in two parts, a predominantly slow first movement, then the more mobile second. Though even that is subject to all sorts of interesting modification as it goes along. The pattern in the first movement is relatively easy to follow. We have the lyrical music growing in strength and intensity. and Then at its height, it's interrupted by violent, stabbing, brassy figures. Then come three sharp, tutti chords like blows of fate. And then, with a mighty chord, a new stage begins, a new kind of momentum. We'll take it from the climax of the lyrical music, then the violent brass interruption, and then this switch into a new kind of momentum. <laughs> climax crisis, which begins a change into something new. What happens, as this music stabilises, is that we begin to sense a kind of swaying, what books call a compound triple time. That's three times three. One, two, three, two, two, three, three, two, three. A new theme emerges to this rhythm on the violins with a suggestion of a kind of waltz-like movement here. And as in the first movement, once again, there's an alternation between this music that moves forward and something more static, something more meditative, something again with these fabulous slow textures. And this reaches another kind of crisis point later in the movement. That swaying little waltz tune falters. You can hear it kind of disintegrate on the clarinet and the bass clarinet. And then something much more sinister emerges on the timpani. The timpani rhythm there is unmistakably funereal, isn't it? In fact, it sounds to me and to quite a few other of us like a strong echo of a very similar moment in Wagner's opera Die Walkere, the so-called annunciation of death when Brunhilde presents herself as the messenger of death to Siegmund, who doesn't know at this stage that he's about to die in battle. And that icy string chord there, that 12-note chord, really does seem to register a chill, doesn't it, in reaction. But then, um, such is the paradoxical nature of this symphony, having had this moment of what sounds quite like a vision of mortality, the life, the vitality, what Lutosławski calls that capricious element, reasserts itself. In fact, this is one of the most delightfully capricious moments in the symphony. You've heard how the strings' harmonies seem to collapse, to fold in on themselves right down onto one note at the end. Well, it's from that one note, the B-flat at the end, the unison B-flat, that the symphony's grandest outpouring of lyrical song emerges. Mm-hmm. What's also striking about that passage is that it seems to bring together the lyrical and the capricious elements in one sound. We've got that big tune on the strings, while the woodwind play this lively counterpoint underneath. While at the same time, the brass provide another level of counterpoint, which is basically the same idea as the woodwind, but at half speed. The whole thing is a wonderful musical image of coming together. Those two elements that have sat side by side up till now are brought together in one lyrical statement. There is one more moment of dissolution, one more moment of crisis before the end of the symphony, where again, It's timeless, the conductor stops beating, there are some extraordinarily poignant little scraps of melody on the two solo violins. Again, it seems that the old composer, the man approaching 80, is staring straight at mortality. But that only makes the ending all the more marvellous, because there's another reassertion of vitality, an incredible outburst of dance momentum, and the symphony ends with that energy with which it seemed to be gathering from the start. Well, in some ways, this music, this symphony, seems very different in tone from the Szymanowski. But just before his death, Lutoslawski did talk about the symphony in an interview. And he said something that I know Szymanowski would have passionately endorsed. And don't forget that both of them are citizens of Poland, a country that's seen rather more than its fair share of suffering in the 20th century. This is what Lutoslawski says. I must say that to live in the world of sounds is happiness. This world is detached from politics, from all the troubles of current events. Only occasionally does one return to the routine of everyday life with its disturbing atmosphere. One returns to it only to leave it again for the world of music, a world where ideals are being eternally searched for, a world of dreams and hopes. A composer can do what those who aren't his brothers in art are unable to. He is supposed to create an ideal. To create what all people are subconsciously striving for. So it isn't just about escapism, it isn't about trying to escape from the appalling imminence of reality, but it's to find in the world of dreams something that one can hold up in front of people and say, maybe this is what you're searching for, maybe this can transform your life and give you hope. And here in the symphony we find a man staring very directly at mortality, coming up with images of death and dissolution but still finding with capricious dancing invention right at the end. I find that very moving indeed. And again, it is something that maybe we can all bear in mind and strive for. But anyway, it's up to you to decide what you think now. So here is Witold Lutosławski's Symphony No. 4, one of his very last major works, played by the BBC Philharmonic, guest leader Ben Holland, and our conductor Leo Hussain.